Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to uh, the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, the book of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. Uh, I mentioned this morning the title of the sermon tonight is Getting Your House in Order, uh, and a lot can be said about that, uh, but my inspiration is very specific uh, tonight, and I, I don't I don't want to be theatrical or overly dramatic, but I believe uh, that this really is a serious matter. Uh, a lot of things are riding on us getting our houses in order and maintaining order in the home. Now, admittedly, this text is specified by the Apostle Paul as instruction for leaders and pastors. You're going to see that when we read it. And of course, in that context, it's certainly appropriate uh, and it is necessary. But what I want to do tonight is I want to expand the advice that's given here as pertaining to all of us, because I think that there is wisdom here that applies to every one of our lives and our marriages and our families. And it really isn't like this verse, this uh, few verses that we're going to read, is for pastors and not for everyone else. That would be kind of uh, absurd, and it wouldn't make any sense, especially in light of what we're going to read tonight. Now, obedience and righteousness brings order to life. This Scripture that we're going to read is qualification for ministry and leadership, but it's also a discourse, as I said, uh, uh, that I think applies uh, to every one of us. Sin and disobedience and some of our uh, erratic, compromising behavior that we can perpetrate brings chaos and disorder. Look at the state of many homes today. State of many people's lives, state of many marriages. There are people, you're sitting here tonight, and all you know and have known is disorder and upheaval and rejection and betrayal. You've never really known stable, righteous family love in your life. The leader's household, this is the point the Apostle Paul is making, the leader's household needs to have order for obvious reasons. But so does your household need to have biblical orderliness, righteousness, and integrity. So I want to examine this verse, and I'm doing my very best tonight to bring very specific revelation that is, contended, uh, that is contained here. This is not opinion. I believe it's scriptural revelation that should govern how we conduct our lives. So let's read it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy and says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, 
not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So let's bow our heads and ask the Lord's help. Father, thank you tonight for this opportunity. I pray for anointing and for the spirit of revelation to be at work. Lord, opening the eyes of our understanding, giving us hope, encouraging our hearts to obedience, giving us vision for our families, our marriages, Lord. We thank you tonight for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Three areas where we need to get our house in order. The first, we need to get our house in order when it comes to our marriage. There's no greater evidence of sin and rebellion and its consequences than the area of relationships between men and women. Now that can be outside of marriage or marriage itself. And I don't want to run through all the statistics and all the uh, numbers and all the various uh, sociological factors that indicate uh, that there's a real problem in relationships uh, between men and women. The moral boundaries uh, uh, have been removed. There are no moral boundaries anymore. Uh, we could talk about uh, uh, the horrible scourge of divorce in our culture, uh, uh, the fact that many people are not choosing to marry any longer, uh, premarital sex, uh, 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 pregnancy outside of marriage, uh, the fact that there are more couples living together uh, uh, than there are getting married today, uh, and that uh, crossed that line about five or six years ago, uh, uh, and there's, of course, an increase uh, in violence, domestic violence, uh, and various uh, altercations uh, uh, between husbands and wives and between men and women. Uh, all of those facts are relevant, uh, and all of those facts describe the current state uh, of relationship with uh, men and women, uh, and it underscores the point uh, that this world uh, has completely lost its way. But there's more involved than just statistics here. There's very real damage that's being done to people's lives, spiritual, emotional, physical damage that is done. And there are long-term effects and consequences. There is turmoil. There is hurt. There is pain that is being perpetrated when we live outside the boundaries of the relationship that God ordained for men and women. Malachi chapter 2 says, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. That's very strong language. The word hate there is the strongest word for the word hate in the Hebrew language. He hates it. For it covers one's garment with violence. Describes it as an act of violence. Not physically, of course, but emotionally. The damage is devastating for everybody involved, not to mention children. It covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So there's a choice here. You don't have to go down the road of divorce. Divorce doesn't have to be enacted and there's choices to make. Don't deal treacherously. Don't do it. 
meaning that you're going to be the one. It's not like some situations uh, just simply get out of hand uh, and we have no option. Uh, You make the right choices uh, and let's believe God together that this marriage can be held together uh, and that love can be discovered. Because what God is concerned about here is not just that it happens, but it's the effects of it on the victims. There are what we refer to uh, in the Bible as relational curses. When the covenant of marriage is broken, even if it's in the case of a divorce that has biblical grounds. Remember, Jesus said in the case of immorality, uh, uh, a person can divorce a spouse uh, if they've been unfaithful and immoral. But even if that is the case, it is still an act of violence. It still hurts, still shatters, it still scars the emotions. In Malachi again, this is the second thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, and so there's an effort to connect with God here. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. And you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So violating your relationship with your spouse affects your relationship with God. I see this, that it it is, I don't have words to describe it. Someone who betrays their wife, treats them horribly, unfaithful and immoral, and yet will, will put off like they have this magnificent relationship with God. I detest that. That bothers me enormously because how you're conducting your relationship with your spouse uh, directly affects uh, your relationship with God. You can't have anger uh, and be mean and cruel uh, and unkind uh, and lack generosity uh, and withhold love and affection uh, and then expect on Sunday morning uh, that we're just going to have this incredible experience with Christ. It's not going to happen. You can weep and cry at the altar, uh, but the Bible says it's not going to be accepted. can't disconnect the two. Harmony in your marriage, harmony with God. Disharmony in your marriage, disharmony in your relationship with God. And then there's the effect of the state of your marriage on your children. Children end up scarred for life, whether you realize this or not. And I know I'm preaching a lot of this to the choir, but I feel particularly strongly about this because of the influx of many of our new members that need to hear this. Children don't get over divorce. They do not. That is a sociological, emotional fact. Children are raised today estranged from one parent or both. There's a lot of anger and they're put in positions that they don't have the emotional maturity to handle. An adult can barely handle it. An adult can barely handle violation in their marriage. What do you expect of children uh, whose emotions aren't developed? Uh, They're immature, uh, and then you're going to perpetrate a scar uh, that they don't have the wherewithal uh, and the ability and the means uh, 
to cope with it. Hatred and anger, violence and depression, poorly, doing poorly in school and socially, uh, and these kids are more likely to divorce uh, when they themselves uh, come of age. Uh, so we know that the conduct of the parents can curse the child. Uh, let's not pretend uh, that that is not the case. Somehow people convince themselves, uh, I can be unfaithful to my wife. Uh, I can betray the relationship. Uh, I can be angry with my husband uh, and exhibit unforgiveness. Uh, and somehow that's not going to affect your children. It profoundly affects them. And many times the scars are lifelong. The parent's conduct can curse the child. Colossians says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. That word means to stimulate, to anger. Provoke is what it means. Don't provoke your children. Don't do things that stimulate them to become angry because they're going to end up disheartened and broken in spirit. Now let's get to our text. All of this flows from how a man treats his wife. Now, I'm going to make a point of my sermon on marriage, but ladies, uh, this isn't for you. This is for the men. I'm going after men tonight, so you can clap and cheer as much as you want. That actually is the emphasis of the text. Of all the things that can be said about a pastor's or a leader's marriage, of all the qualifying factors that can be said, he says you're to be the husband of one wife. I thought about that. I pondered that. Of all the things you could have said, I don't see the word love there. Provision, protect, guard, watch over, be righteous, be faithful. You be the husband of one wife. Now, there's two things here in that statement. There's what is stated, and then there's what is implied by the statement. What is stated is very practical, a very practical application. If you're going to be a pastor, no divorce, no polygamy. <laughs> Pretty husband of one wife. Not one at a time, but one. What is implied, though, by this statement has far-reaching implications, and I think it's very deep. Be a husband. The husband of one wife. The word means to, it refers to one betrothed, so it could refer to an engaged person, but I think in this context, it's referring to a man who is in a lifelong bond of covenant relationship with a woman who is his wife. And there is a body of conduct. This is the point to be made. This is what's implied. There is a body of conduct that pertains to being a husband that goes way beyond the legal definition. It's kind of like fathering a child doesn't make you a father. The term implies that you now have to do certain things, right? Being a father. You may be a sperm donor and a baby daddy, but it doesn't make you a father. A father, that word implies so much 
about love and covenant and protection and teaching and so many other things. And the same is true with a husband of one wife. You can legally be a husband, but not be living and exhibiting the biblical definition of what that word means. So what does it mean to be a husband? Two things I want to present to you. Number one, a husband loves. It's what he does. It's who he is. It is his calling. It is his responsibility. It is his duty. A husband loves consistently, faithfully at all times. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The implication is that if you do your part, if you just be a husband, just be that and love, the rest will take care of itself. You'll have a great marriage. So this text, I think, requires us to examine the state of our love for our wives. Now, the ideal and the example that is presented in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, is Jesus. You are to love as Christ loves the church. Now, that has to be a statement that describes the strongest love that has ever been evinced in this world. It includes the cross and all that that represents. It includes our sin and our backsliding and our compromising, and yet God's consistent love and efforts to reach us and to bring us to a place of repentance and restoration. It includes covenant, a permanent bond of covenant that has been put in place and established in the Bible, in our relationship with God. It is by his word in our relationship with our lives. It is at the day that we got married and we made vows and we established a legal binding covenant that we would do certain things. A husband is in no danger of loving his wife too much. He is in grave danger of not exhibiting the love of Jesus Christ toward his wife. A husband's love is to be strong and steady, patient, unwavering, sometimes one-sided. Now, all you ladies, very attractive, You can be the nicest people in the history of the world, but sometimes you can be difficult to love. Cranky? No? Moody? Emotionally hysterical? Every once in a while you have your meltdown? Well, okay, women out there, other than those who attend our church do. Listen, we're not always lovable, are we? We get mad at God? We're not always as faithful as we should be. We make bad decisions. We compromise. We don't uphold in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. Christian principle, have you ever had a temper tantrum with God? I suppose most of us have. Yet, that doesn't change his affection 
and his love, he takes it from us. We take it from our wives. Mostly they're loving loving, and incredible blessing to our lives. But the point that I'm making is that love doesn't waver and it's not dependent on how the person loved is particularly behaving at any given moment. Husband is not a reactionary. Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wife with understanding. Giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel is being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. That word understanding means moral wisdom. Dwell with your wife with understanding according to what God's word says, according to what you learn about her, what you know about her. She's the weaker vessel, your heirs together. And this has very profound implications. And so the scripture is saying that that a leader, and I believe it's true for every Christian, you be a husband and a husband loves. Secondly, a husband leaves. And I don't mean it in the bad way. Now, this precedent was set in place in the book of Genesis by the words of Adam himself. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother shall leave, shall leave, leave. 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 Therefore, a man, man, All grown up now, big boy, shall leave his mother, his father and mother, and be joined to his wife and their two one. That's permanent. There's no going back. You've left. Why is this stated? That a man has to leave father and mother and be joined to his wife. And why does that matter? It is an It is apparently a very important item of truth because what Adam said, Jesus quoted. I mean, if Jesus is quoting you, you've arrived, I think. Jesus quotes Adam. The Apostle Paul quotes Adam. You got Jesus and the Apostle Paul quoting you, saying what you said, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, this is obviously in a relational text. The word is interesting. It actually means a loosening. It doesn't mean loving less or forsaking in a literal sense, but it literally means to loosen the bonds of attachment permanently. They're never the same after marriage. We still have mothers and fathers I still have children. Love is, is, is still present, but there's a loosening and there's a letting go. And those bonds are not the same after marriage. Now, why is that stated? It's stated because there's going to be resistance. Mothers and sons and fathers and daughters who will not let go of those bonds after marriage. Now, the text is assuming that the relationship between parents and the son or the daughter is a good one. And what it's saying is, look, this is going to be a challenge to cut the apron strings. There has to be a willful loosening of those bonds. And if you don't, 
You're going to mess up your life and mess up your marriage. Parents, I say to you very lovingly, with fuzziness, warmth, and compassion, get out of the business of your children's marriage. If they need counseling, send them to me. Send them to uh, Pastor uh, Glenn or Brother Ernie. Get out of the business of your children's marriages. Now, why is this important in the context of a pastor leader? And I think it's this. People need to see that marriage, the marriage of a pastor or leader, this is what Paul is getting at, be the husband of one wife, is the most important relationship in that pastor's life, and it needs to be seen as such by the membership of the congregation. This needs to be visible. It's part of the example of those in ministry. And while I don't have a mother and father alive anymore that I could run home to, part of being a husband of one wife is demonstrating that my marriage is the priority of my life. My marriage matters to me. My marriage is important to me, and it comes before anything else other than my relationship with God and my calling. A man shall leave, and by doing so, you demonstrate something very profound. Secondly, I took a little longer with that point than I meant to, but secondly, you have to get your house in order when it comes to your behavior. I use that word because it's in our text. Part of getting your house in order is how you act in your home. It's your inner disposition that you may be able to control when you're in church. I mean, we're pretty saved when we're here, aren't we? We're singing, we're polite, we're, you know, projecting that we have the victory, that we're, but oh, listen, we get out of the car, walk into our house, shut the door, and boom. Radical transformation, metamorphosis takes place. What is your inner disposition? This, of course, has to do with what rules in your life. And what rules in your life may not be discovered in church, but it's going to be discovered in the home. It's one thing to behave yourself in church, in a public setting, at work. It's quite another how you act in the home. And I've dealt with uh, 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 married couples before. And the guy out at work, at church, everybody thinks highly of this guy. He is so polite and so respectful uh, and such a great friend and so dependable. uh, But in the home, the wife says, you have no idea what I'm living with and what he's really like. How you are in your home is how you are and who you are. Anyone can be a hypocrite. When I I make a little joke, whenever someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I want to get involved in drama, you know, the drama team, and I say, I always ask, well, are you a drama queen? You know, we can all act. We can all create an image. We can all project uh, something uh, that we are not in reality. 
But you can't be a hypocrite all the time. You can't. I mean, we're in church a few hours a week. You can do it that much time. But you can't be a hypocrite all the time. Your true self is going to manifest. And one place where you really can't be a hypocrite is in your home. Who you are there is who you are. Galatians chapter 5 gives us two lists. The works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. The works of the flesh are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contention, jealousy. We don't see that in the church for the most part at least not playing out, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, envy, drunkenness. We can mask all that in certain places and at certain times, but not all the time and not in the home. There's something about the home when the masks come down. When reality projects itself, and I wonder if people would be abhorred by how we act in our homes if they could see it, how we think and how we talk when no one else is around. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We can exhibit those for short bursts of time when we're in church or we're with other people. See, whether it's the flesh or the spirit is going to be determined by what rules your life. Being under the authority and the rule of the Holy Spirit, submitted to God, filled with the Holy Ghost, subjugated by his word, or under the authority of your carnal and your fallen nature. The former of those through the fruit of the Spirit is what's going to bring peace into your home. When you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your house, it brings peace. The latter will result in chaos and disorder. So let's very quickly examine this list. A lot of things are mentioned here. When I run through this, you're going you're to think, <laughs> I can't even get to first base with that. But listen, it is not an impossible ideal to exhibit all of these attributes in your life because we have the assistance of the Holy Spirit. We have the opportunity for repentance. We can pray. We have a spirit of God to access. We have his love that can be manifest in our life. So we have all kinds of advantages. We're not just trying to make this happen and force this to happen. This is something we can legitimately strive for because we're under the rule of the Holy Spirit. So let's go through some of these blameless. He who desires the office of a bishop must be blameless. The word means literally unrebukable, irreproachable, not open to censure. And this may be for someone here not subject to arrest. No warrants out. Nobody looking for you. Blameless. You strive for that. I don't want there to be an area of my life that's reproachable. That someone can point out as not being in concert with my Christian faith. 
Temperate is the second word. That word means circumspect. And that literally means that you're aware of your surroundings. It's the illustration I like to use in describing this word. You're driving down the freeway and you want to change lanes because the exit you want to get on is coming up quickly, but you're on the inside lane in the fast lane, so you got to go across. You don't just swerve the car across and get off on your exit because you got to get off on that exit. You got to make sure no one's going to be hurt by what you're doing. And you may not be able to get off on that exit because if you do, if you make the maneuver in your car, you're going to hurt someone. That's what it means to be circumspect. You're aware of your surroundings. You're cognizant of the fact that what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're thinking, how you're acting can hurt people, and so you don't do it. Some people just don't care. Blameless, temperate, sober-minded. That is a word that means to have self-control. It's the ability to govern one's desires and impulses. Something may make you mad, but you don't vent. You may have a desire to say something or do something that would be very wrong. Being sober-minded means you have oversight and control over that area of your life. You may feel like it. You may think it's going to feel good if I say this and do this. But you realize, no, it's going to be harmful and dangerous. The implication sober-minded, people have little control of their faculties when they're drunk. They say whatever comes to their mind. They think they're, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali. They, they think they're Michael Jordan. Uh, they have all kinds of images about how great they shoot their mouths off. They pick fights. Uh, they may make a pass at a, at a girl. Uh, no comportment whatsoever. Everything that we feel, uh, uh, we've got to let it go. No, you, better, you better find sobriety in life and be able to govern and control your impulses. Good behavior. Good behavior. That means orderly and well-arranged, a modest disposition. And the inference here or the imagery here is someone who dresses well, clean, pressed, combed, well, relative to who you are in life, combed, uh, clean, smell nice, uh, someone who, who is orderly, not disheveled, different colored socks, uh, uh, clothes that don't match. Everything's wrinkled and you've been wearing the same shirt for 14 days running. Good behavior means you're presentable. Your behavior, your conduct, your actions, you're aware of your appearance uh, behaviorally. Hospitable. That word means to be fond of guests. Generous with people. Good social graces. Ability to make people feel welcome and comfortable and important in your presence. This is a Christian virtue that most people don't learn in the world because of the family breakdown and all the bitterness and anger relationally that happens in life. We get in a social setting and we're uncomfortable. We don't know how to relate to people if we don't know them or we're meeting them for the first time. We'd rather just be by ourselves. This is the culture that we live in, but a Christian develops the virtue to be hospitable, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. The first should be obvious. 
And if you don't understand, not given to wine, you can refer to Pastor Glenn's sermon from December. Not violent. That doesn't necessarily mean physical violence, but it refers to a person with a contentious and a quarrelsome spirit. As a Christian, you've got to knock that off. A pugnacious spirit. That means somebody that their buttons are easy to push and they go off. Not violent, not greedy for money. Talked a little bit about this this morning. People who are too eager for gain to the point where they will compromise Christian commandments, Christian virtue, and the purpose and the will of God. And then in verse 7, he says, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You better not have sinners accusing you or having evidence of unchristian behavior. Our testimony has to be guarded. It has to be protected in order to have credibility. This is what getting your house in order means. It means an orderly presentation of your disposition. And I wonder what effort are you making to bring about an orderly disposition and to get a handle on your behavior. It's, it's prayer, it's repentance, it's self-reflection. All of our prayer life isn't focused on ourselves in that way, but some of it should be. We should be improving every single day when it comes to behavior. So getting your house in order has to do with your behavior. Thirdly, getting your house in order has to do with your children. We're living in a generation of anarchy and rebellion. Now, that's always been the case, but I think we can all agree that it's much more pronounced today. And my generation's at fault. We rebelled. Sexual revolution. The drug culture that emerged out of my generation, now parents that are my age that aren't saved are raising rebels. That's the fruit of their own rebellion in their own teenage and adolescent years. And this rebellion that is so pronounced today, it's no, nowhere is it more clearly seen than in the home. Teenage rebellion has become the order of the day. There's a lot of reasons for it. The primary one, of course, is sinful nature. You can be a great parent and your children can make horrible choices and turn to sin and rebellion under your own roof. Teenage rebellion is born also for the sociological reasons that I've already mentioned. People are raised in a home, young people are, where there's chaos and bitterness and vitriol and anger and betrayals and abandonment. What do you expect of these kids? They're hurt and they're wounded at a time in life where there's no healing for them. Now, the Christian home, as we all know, is not immune. Sin can come home. It did in my house and it can in yours. There are no absolute guarantees against sin coming home. We as parents give an advantage to our children by serving God raising our children in church, but ultimately they're going to make choices. Their hormones are going to rage. Their rebellious instincts are going to come to the surface and try to find expression. They may meet people that are not good for them to 
uh, start running with. Sometimes it's not uh, what is happening to you, but it is, it is who is happening to you. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's what the Scripture says. When he is old, he'll not depart from it, but when he's young, he might. You can give a child every advantage. Raising them in a great church, ministries, love, and they can still choose sin. I mean, who would know this better than God himself? Adam and Eve were in paradise. And there was no sinful impulse as we know it today. They were in paradise. They had no worries. They had, no relation, they had a relationship with God. And yet they chose sin. They fell. And there's a long list in the Bible of great parents and their children who sinned. So here's the question that we're going to explore for a moment, how do you parent when there's rebellion in the home? This is going to be the key. This is going to be the determining factor whether your house is going to represent God's order or not. Many years ago, I still remember it to this day, because back in those days, many years ago, I never thought my children would even ever go to school, let alone become 41 years old. I never thought I'd be a grandfather. But Pastor Mitchell preached a sermon in a conference in Prescott, probably around 1978 or nine or so. And he gave us a warning and he said, the greatest challenge, one of the greatest challenges that is coming to our fellowship in the future is the children of pastors, when they grow up and they're unruly and disorderly, and the reproach that's going to bring if those pastors don't handle that with integrity and with righteousness. So the issue here is only what God expects. We should try to ascertain that. What does God expect? Our parental instincts can drive us in precisely the wrong direction. We call it love. Emotionally, something may make us feel better, but it's precisely wrong, and it's not in the best interest of the children that need salvation and repentance and conversion. It's not in the best interest of those in rebellion. So we have to recognize when these parental instincts are working, but not to the advantage of the child. very hard because in many cases we're battling against ourselves so for a moment tonight let's allow truth to override emotion prejudice and favoritism and any instinct we may have as parents that may be, mis that may be misguided or wrong so let's look at this text. There are three words we're going to examine here. He's talking about the office of a bishop. I went through all the uh, attributes of behavior, and then he says in verse 4, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission, 
with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Okay. So let's ask the obvious question. What does not knowing how to rule his own house look like? If someone's not ruling their own house well, what does it look like? And one who rules his own house well, what does that look like? We obviously can determine and answer those questions tonight. Now, I think we can safely assume that he's talking about what happens when children are in sin and rebellion and disobedience. Otherwise, there's no need for the terminology of the text. If everything's hunky-dory and happy family and moving along and everything's cool and good, why use the word rule and submission and reverence as necessary qualities for those adult children that are living in your home? And from a ministry standpoint, if you ever are going to pastor, you may have small children now, but if you're ever going to pastor, this may become an issue. And it's a, 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 I can tell you, it's, it's a wide ranging issue uh, in our fellowship, uh, in every country. uh, And there are pastors today that are losing credibility because they're mishandling the sin of their children in the position of a pastor. It's hurting them. So let's look at these three words. A household requires rule. This word is describing an atmosphere where authority is in place and authority is being responded to. Authority is operative. And the members of the household are responding for good or bad, but the authority is there and different personalities and individuals are, not everybody responds to authority in the same. Authority functions over our culture and society. We have various laws. Some people get out on the road in their car and they obey the speed limit. They put their indicator on 100 or 300 feet before they have to turn. They slow down in the school zone. They do everything, but not everybody does. You might be on your way home from church tonight. Some motorcycle guy may be racing uh, uh, down Lee Trevino going 70 miles an hour, weaving in and out of traffic. Not everybody responds to authority to the same, but the authority's there. The word means to superintend, to preside over, to be set over. One who rules his own house well, that means with excellence. Authority And rule, as it's described here, has to be recognized and responded to one way or another. There is no rule and there is no authority if anarchy and rebellion are allowed to remain in place without consequence. If that guy racing down the street, 70 miles an hour down Lee Trevino on a motorcycle, weaving in and out of traffic, passes a cop, and that cop does nothing about it. There is no rule. So why use the word? Because the expectation is that there's going to be authority in the home. And as a result of that authority, a household requires the second word, which is submission. That is the correct response to authority. In order to rule well, 
children have to be submitted to the rule and the authority that is exercised in the home. And if they are adult children and they're not submitted, they become disqualified to live in that home. And what I just said is biblical revelation. It's what the text is saying. You cannot define ruling well if there is pretend authority in place, but no execution of consequence. You can't define ruling well your own house if there's open rebellion, unsubmission, allowing adults to live in your house on their own sinful terms. Consider the story of the prodigal son. I read this again the other day, and I saw something that I hadn't considered before. So the prodigal son is no longer willing to submit to the father. Nothing is said that we read anyway, but the son knows if I'm not going to submit to my father, the only option is I got to leave, and he does. And the father doesn't try to stop him. Let's him go. No effort. And there's a wife, but she is not a factor here. She doesn't go chasing after him, trying to talk him out of it. He, they let him go because he's not willing to submit. No room in the household for children not willing to submit. And then the Bible says, after his folly and his sin, there rose a famine in the land and no one gave him anything. No mommy, no daddy. No friend, nobody. Nobody gave him anything. And then what happens after that? The Bible says he comes to himself. And he says, I've sinned against my father. And you know the story. He makes the journey home in humility and repentance and brokenness. I wonder if someone had given him something before he repented to soften the blow of the consequences of his bad decision, if he would ever have repented, quit giving them stuff. Make your children feel the full weight of the consequence of their sin if you have any hope of them repenting. Now, nobody's dancing in the aisles, and I appreciate that. I know this is hard to listen to. I wonder if that young man would have ever come to himself if people would have given him stuff, made provision for him, done his laundry, fed him, provided him with accommodation. He repented because he ended up absolutely bankrupt in life. And he went back home to his father. A house requires reverence. Rule is the first word, submission is the second, and now reverence. Another translation says, commanding respect in every way and keeping your children respectful. The word means that they honor you. They respect you. They bestow dignity. You, as a parent, a godly, righteous man and woman of God, are doing sufficiently to be deserving of their respect. Is that respect forthcoming? Is it? Or are they disrespectful and dismissive 
and rebellious, if they have no respect, no honoring of your authority, insist on living on their own terms outside the boundaries of your authority, ignoring godly authority is disrespect. And the qualification for adult membership in your home is respect. Ruling well can't be defined as allowing someone to live in your home who does not respect you if you're deserving of respect. Remember the narrative of Samuel. He had two fornicating, immoral, rebellious sons. And Eli did rather. Samuel is the young boy prophet who gives Eli a word. And he says this, in that day, says the Lord, I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli uh, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now listen very carefully to this. The judgment on Eli's house was not because of the sins of his sons. It's not why God judged it. It was Eli's inaction, lack of judgment, no consequences. That's what upset God more than the sin itself. If he has someone that will make a stand for God and represent his interest in the face of sin, there's always hope for repentance. But when you do nothing and when you accommodate, there is a less likelihood. You have to make. Decisions with your children. You're going to get your house in order tonight. You have to make decisions about your children based on truth, not emotion, not favoritism or prejudice, but real and genuine love based on what action on your part as a parent who loves this child is in their best interest and the best interest of their eternal soul. I'm hesitating, but I'm going to say what I wrote here. Denying your adult unsaved children access to your home is what is in their best interest. If you think that is a lack of love, oh, how can I be mijito porosito? If you think that's a lack of love, What are you going to think when your unsaved, rebellious children are standing before God and they're barred from heaven and they're sent to hell? You need to give them a taste of that day now by judging. And you will increase the likelihood of repentance and you will remove the curse from your home. Getting your house in order. There's a lot, of, a lot at stake when it comes to this. The orderliness of the households of believers and Christians goes a long way. Not only for the salvation of those who may be part of your household that are unsaved and they're not right with God, but also for the unsaved and the unrighteous uh, who have an opportunity to look into the homes of believers and Christians uh, and see something happening that's not happening in the world. There is real and genuine love. There is real and genuine concern and care and godliness and righteousness and integrity. So our challenge, get our house in order when it comes to marriage, 
get our house in order when it comes to our conduct and our behavior and get our house in order when it comes to our children. There's a blessing of God when we make that effort. I want you to bow your heads tonight. Every head bowed, every eye closed.